Hi everyone, Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It is February 27th, 2024, 18th day of Adar Aleph, 5784. I uh, just finished one of the most intense weeks that I've had in a very long time in my capacity as Director of Tourism and Education for Winneswell Fund. I planned a week, um, a week for women touring Judea and Samaria, meeting other women. So we had a small group, we had about 10 women. Tough to get flights these days, but it was fine. Actually, small group um, builds a beautiful atmosphere. So they came in last Sunday. We started Monday morning, and we started off in the Jordan Valley with Namati Jad Hari Note Ranch, um, just seeing what they're doing there, how they have been able to successfully keep the Arabs from Jericho from spilling out and taking over land that is uh, Israeli state land. Um, they have a ranch there. They grow unbelievable mangoes every morning. I have two dates with a cup of coffee. The coffee's not from them. The dates are um, great olive oil. Buy it by the five liter jerry can, more than one at a time. And uh, they are just an extraordinary couple. Um, her husband sir, hasn't really been home. He's not a young guy. He's in his 40s. He's been doing some pretty incredible things in Gaza, um, which I cannot detail, but they are just very, very, very special people on every single level. Just live and breathe. The people of Israel, they themselves have seven kids, work with youth at risk. It's just a very special place and a really great way to start off the trip um, with, uh, with her and the area and planting spices, just, you know, digging our hands into the dirt a little bit. And from there, we went up the Jordan Valley to a place called Machne Gadi, which is a beautiful young community. And so I always say, you, you don't invest in a place, you invest in the people. So, um, they are just a few years old. Most of the men were called up to fight. Um, so we treated the women to lunch, uh, and they shared some of what they're going through now uh, during the last few months. Uh, beautiful, all beautiful women from all over the country, uh, and just really sharing with us as women uh, some of the difficulties and some of the challenges and some of the successes that they've had um, being, you know, with the kids, they're 24 seven. And then of course, a lot of them, their husbands are either starting to come home now, have come home the last couple of weeks, but all of them have called up papers for the next few months once again. And um, it's, you know, not so easy when the men come home. Um, some of the kids don't run to their father right away, uh, when you're three years old and you haven't seen your father in four months or, you know, or in and out, then it's, a, there's a little bit of a wariness and some of them have gone through really difficult things. Um, you know, when your best friend since kindergarten is killed standing next to you. So, um, that's something, and you can't stop to grieve because you're in the middle of a battle so these are all things that are happening every single day, and there's stories every single day, and I don't think there's a family or a couple in Israel right now that isn't dealing with something. Um, so we had, a, we had a really wonderful time with them, though, and, and saw how some of the contributions we have made there. Um, a woman who was on the trip 
just helped them build a gymboree last year. And they were saying how wonderful that was and how it kept the kids busy. So um, some of the little things turned into much bigger things. Then we went and met with the head of security in the Jordan Valley, who has an incredibly difficult job because the Jordan Valley is many, 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 many kilometers long and borders with Jordan. And she's responsible for the security there. She herself, a mother of five, also beautiful woman manicured nails, the whole thing, but telling us uh, the uptick in the terrorism in the Valley, even before the war and her responsibilities. And uh, she's just, wow, so impressive. So awesome. Then we went to see Sylvie Oren in um, Nativa Gdud. She and her husband grow uh, the Moroccan nut trees and they sell 100% pure argon oil. So we heard about that and about there. They're there since the 1970s. They're some of the first people who came down to settle the Jordan Valley after the Six Day War. And um, that, you know, when a lot of it's very, very hot there in the summer, like 120 degrees. Um, in the shade, I'm talking Fahrenheit, obviously. So they, uh, not everybody, and not everybody knew how to farm and not everybody was equipped for the heat. So they had a lot of setbacks. They also grew figs a few years ago. They grew like, I don't know, tons of figs for England, uh, the English market, who then decided that because the figs had been grown in the Jordan Valley, which they consider occupied territory, then they weren't going to buy them. So they had to take months of work. And uh, eventually, because they couldn't find another market for them, throw them out. So they have had uh, ups and downs, but now they're hopefully doing okay with argan oil. If anybody wants their address, first of all, you can look it up. It's called Meshik Orin, but it's 100% pure argan oil. It's really amazing stuff. Um, and so they f- seem to have found a niche there uh, and among some other things, and they're working so hard. And then we went to Mitzbeyericha, um, where their mayor is just out of sight. We have um, municipal elections in most of the communities in Israel and Judea and Samaria today. I can't imagine that she's not going to win. She's just done some really special things for the town, originally American. And um, so I, at that point, I had to leave because I had a family wedding and we're making super Herculean efforts these days to um, get to family occasions. Uh, so I had a, a cab take me, but the women had dinner there with women whose, who, whose husbands are in the army and they themselves are new immigrants. So they don't even have like the support system of family and friends that they grew up with there. And she is the mayor, Lisa Pilchowski is, uh, making sure that these women get taken care of and, and get the support that they need. Uh, from the community, if if not from family. And so apparently that was just a, a beautiful dinner and the women shared a lot of their experiences and what they're going through. And everywhere we went, we left toys for kids and tried to bring gifts to the women themselves, make them feel a little bit special because they are a lot special. Then the next day was um, the day around Shechem, around Nablus, so on that day, I had the opposite. I had my uncle, the the podcast that I rebroadcast last week um, was about my uncle and he was buried in Beit Shemesh 
last Tuesday. So I got them up to the area of, uh, of Itamar where they were spending their morning. And then I don't even know, whatever, borrowed my daughter's car, pouring rain, whatever it was. I got down to the cemetery in Beit Shemesh where I was able to see my aunts and my cousins and pay my last respects to a man who had a tremendous impact on my life at a very critical time. And these days it is almost, um, a relief to bury someone who's in their 90s after what's going on here. But of course, it's still a loss for the family. And um, I wanted to be there with them and I wanted their support as well. And then I went back up to that area and met them in Yitzhar, where we went to Mayanayash, who is an expert in stones and in the breastplate, the priestly breastplate breastplate of the first temple period. Uh, That, of course, of course, comes from her background growing up in Brazil as a Catholic, not being so happy with Catholicism, um, going out into the um, Amazon area and learning about the the strength and the power of the stones. I know it sounds woohoo, but there's there's energies in everything, and that has been scientifically proven. Anyway, so she does that, finds herself in Europe, meets an Israeli. Yeah, she's searching. She's on a spiritual search. They both are together. They end up at Judaism, and she she moves to Israel. She converts, only to find that her family, Ranusim, were um, were Jews who fled the Iberian Peninsula to South America during the Inquisition, and then eventually uh, they were forced to convert. They were forced to convert to Christianity, or eventually forgot their Jewish roots altogether. So she has that in her, and now she's living in these beautiful hills and and has many children and grandchildren and also making jewelry. So that was an interesting afternoon. And then we wrapped up our day at the Torah winery in Rachilim with Vered Ben Sadon, who's the vintneress, um, with a uh, lovely dinner to which we invited Chani Leiter, whose son Moshe was killed at the beginning of the war. And she spoke to us about him and his widow and six children and his life and uh, what have they been coping and how or not and how it's changed their life. So um, that was a very big part of it. There were other women there also who shared some of what they're going through, either being called to the army or whatever it is con- con- contributing either from the front or from the back to what's happening here. On Wednesday, we went south. So we started off the day in my hometown of Efrat. We sat with Naomi Weiser, whose son Roe was killed um, on the 7th of October at his base in the south. And she told us about him and um, and about how he was killed. And um, she said they were actually uh, happy because they knew how he died. It's amazing to me. And it happened with all these women, like pulling out, the um the good thing in an absolutely miserable situation um having faith still seeing a miracle where most of us might not uh so they she said that they felt a sense of relief because at least they know how he died there's still so many parents now either don't know how their child died or don't even know where he or she is um and they're just missing maybe hostages maybe not so she said that uh, he he died as he lived, which is doing for others. Apparently, he was the command one of the commanders, and he was already in the safe room, the Hamas terrorists are all around the base. But there were uh, like twelve of his soldiers who were outside 
and had not made it to the safe room yet. And he went outside um, to help save them and bring them in. And he did. But on his way back in, he was murdered. So she feels at least grateful that, um, that the person, the person that he was is also the person that he was up until his last breath. And um, there is comfort in that. And then he saves a lot of other people and he did for others. So when the knock on the door came, cause they, hadn't heard from him during that Shabbat um, and how they did not want to open the door, but eventually they did have to open the door and then everything changes forever. But she's speaking to people and she's, um, you know, also doing what they, she can to, um, to keep his memory alive and dealing with her other children and the feelings that they're going through. And of course the tremendous sense of loss, and then from there, we went all the way down to the southern Hebron Hills to Dalia Harsinai, who's, I didn't tell them anything. In, the, in general, I did not, I only gave them the brief outlines of the women we were going to visit because I prefer that they hear the story from them. Um, so we went to Dalia Harsinai, we did a bread workshop. She had it already. We made focaccia and we made rolls and we made bagels and um, like five different kinds, pita. Uh, and then while everything was baking and there's something so strong, so I don't even know what the word is. Cause I also bake halot. There's something almost like, uh, going back to making bread. I don't have to tell you guys, you all live through COVID. So you know what I mean about baking bread anyway. So we made bread with her in her ranch. And then she told us how, uh, the whole story about how she and her husband Yair, who grew up completely, um, like without any kind of you know religion, they grew up here in Israel, but completely not religious. And their whole journey, also looking for spirituality, for faith, for God, and eventually finding it in Judaism, and also um, uh, becoming experts in organic farming from this wonderful Italian, whom I also had the privilege to meet, Mario Levy. He's considered the father of Israeli organic farming and he was up in Kibbutz Deliyahu and a lot of people came through there and I was also able to meet him. I have a picture somewhere also of him on a tractor that I took. Uh, he died a few years ago, but he made a tremendous impact. Um, also as a, as a religious Jew saying, you know, we don't want to use chemicals. This is the land that we love. We don't want to destroy the land by spraying. So they were very much um, impacted by him and they ended up there in Sosia. Um, and her husband learns Arabic and he, they buy a flock and they go out and they have fields and, and they're shepherds. And then eventually the Arabs that he had, uh, struck up a relationship with him, murdered him one day. He just simply didn't come home and they found his body. Oh, gee, what a surprise, right? Um, so she was with, uh, I think nine, nine small children, including a baby, uh, kept up the ranch on her own and her kids helped and volunteers came and now it's, it's years later and, uh, her kids are grown and gone. Um, some of her daughters married the volunteers that came to the farm. So that was nice. She's a beautiful woman, smile on her face. Reminds me of one of the matriarchs and, uh, still doing bread, doing bread workshops. She's slowing down now, but she's still keeping up the ranch. She marks, she's a little flour mill and she markets her flour. <clears throat> around the country. And um, she uh, just inspirational doesn't even encapsulate half of what these women were. From there, we went to Cafe Ronel, uh, 
They've been there before, amazing woman, Ronelle, uh, limping around because she broke her leg very badly. But she and her husband, they usually tell us their story, or she usually tells us their story, he doesn't really, of um, being in South Africa, being very devout Christians, very devout biblical Christians, just felt that something wasn't whole for them. And they end up finding out about Judaism, making their way into Judaism, converting and, and moving to Israel and raising their family there. Uh, and I think her son at the time was in, it was still in Gaza. And she has a beautiful uh, coffee shop that she opened overlooking the Jordan Valley to the east, um, perched on the hills. And what's happened this year, because there's been more rain than usual, that even places that aren't green are green and there's flowers everywhere. And it's almost like the land is trying to heal us with some of its beauty. And um, just, I don't know, there's a strange thing going on here. Hazui, which I've mentioned before and is intranslatable, like it just means situation that's not, can't be understood. So that still applies just in so many ways. When you're here and you meet people and you go around, um, it gets even more intense. Anyway, I invited Avishag Livman, whose son Eliakim is a hostage. He was one of the security people at the Nova Festival. And he and his friend Eitan Moore uh, both disappeared. Um, that night, and the, the belief is that they're both being held hostage. So she came to speak to us. Uh, she has a little booklet of psalms that we said with her in his in his name, and she is just so positive and has so much faith in talking about how God is, was good to her that day because she didn't realize what trouble everybody was in, and they had a um, grandson was born to them a couple of weeks ago, and they were just sure that Alia Kim was going to come in and be the Sandek, be the person that holds the baby during the Brit Mila, the circumcision ceremony. And he didn't, but today, as I'm broadcasting this, they have a bar mitzvah of her youngest son. And when I was in touch with her yesterday, she said, you know, like we're setting a place for him and we're hoping that he's going to be at the bar mitzvah. And if not, the Pijon Haben, the 30-day ceremony, of redeeming the child from the priests that uh, that's coming up soon. And she said what she does is she prays for him to find a lovely wife because by praying for him to find a lovely and good wife, then she's inherent in that. She's praying for his return, but not only that, his return healthy, emotionally healthy, so that he can have a relationship and build a family. So she's moved beyond just praying for his return to another level. And um, from there, we went to meet Tara El Cohen in Ban Ayin, beautiful sunset there. And she was talking to us. I've known her for a long time. She's only 31 years old. She's unbelievable. I've known her for 10 years. She's working on a doctorate in resilience in border communities. Like she just got a whole a whole lot of more material to add to her academic research, um, to her PhD. And that's what she's been doing already for the last decade is establishing student villages 
in places uh, uh, that are considered border communities. So obviously the Western Negev in Gush Etzion, she has a couple in the Jordan Valley and a lot of different areas in Judea and Samaria. She has 96 villages, which just blew me away that they got to that point. And they put young people um, into these communities, like 18 to 35, because some of these communities, especially the Kibbutzim on the borders, um, don't really have that demographic. They have young families. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> they have older people, but that tends to be a demographic that then does the army and moves away for a while, either travels or studies, and until some of them don't come back, when it, until they come back maybe with their own young families because they want their kids to have a childhood similar to what they had. Anyway, so um, so she has these student villages. She had three in the Western Gaza. Uh, one of them was in near Oz which is a community that had total, terrible, terrible devastation on October 7th. The army never made it to them. The, the terrorists left, completed what it was they wanted to do before the army got there. If you're familiar with the Bibas family, the beautiful redheaded children, they're from near Oz, as are others. So uh, some of the people that she knows were killed, and obviously others were devastated, and she's dealing with that, but she's also going to rebuild and um, the problem that she has, of course, in Judea and Samaria is that major organizations don't so um, go into Judea and Samaria, um, some of the major organizations that have raised quite a bit of money, um, somehow draw the line at the communities in Yudava Shamron, even though we are so much on the front. So we were talking to her about that. And then we went to Keva Rachel to the Rachel's tomb to do some praying before we in outside of Bethlehem before we came back into Jerusalem, and that was just the end of the third day. And then the fourth day we went into the Shiloh area, and we met with um, a few representatives of Hatzafot. I'm going to have to have them on as a separate podcast. And the women who were left behind when the men all left to go to the army, um, because a lot of the men in Judea and Samaria went to help uh, Jews be protected in the north and in the south, but their own wives and children were left without as much protection as they needed. So they have been, they organized and they've been, um, they've been lobbying the Knesset and been on the news in order to raise awareness that, I mean, and those of us who live in Judea and Samaria, October 7th shocked us on on the scale, um, but in terms of the level of cruelty, those were some, some things that we had already seen here, just albeit in smaller numbers over the years, um, and know that from everything that we know now, that the, the rest of the Arabs in Judea and Samaria and in Gaza also, which is um, not one of those people who thinks that there's a just there are a bunch of innocents that's taken over Hamas. All they're crying about Hamas now is not because of what Hamas did on October seventh. Polls are showing that close to eighty percent of them agree, and the hostages are being held in the homes of civilians, and so-called innocent UNRWA and Red Cross members are Hamas themselves. The whole thing is is one big ball of evil. Um, those are, that's all for different podcasts. So, um, so we met with them so impressive and they would like us to help them to get the word out, maybe even internationally or translate things. And, uh, so we met with them and we, uh, we went to Shiloh and we saw the red heifers, the famous red heifers. And, and some women had a chance also to, to say some prayers where Hannah prayed and we went and then did a glass workshop. Every day we had some kind of workshop. 
some way of being a little creative or just using our hands or bodies and not our necessarily our hearts or thinking, although it was hard to stop that. And we did a beautiful glass workshop in Manit in Kida, where everybody made um, tea candles uh, out of shards of glass. And that's what she says, is you can take something that's broken and make it whole again. So she's been, as you can imagine, doing not a little bit of therapy on soldiers who have come home. And then we drove to Dolev, which is such an important place. It's a a place, a school, or even a haven for girls at tremendous risk. Um, Girls who have either just had terrible home lives or have some mental issues um, and need, need a place to help them recover from that and become, you know, functional adults. So they teach them uh, culinary. We, oh, they made these incredible cookies for us. We didn't have much time there, but it was, that was just so nice. And they spoke, some of the girls spoke to us and, um, and they learned how to do hair and makeup and woodworking and sewing and all kinds of, uh, all kinds of jobs that can get them out there in the workforce and get them independent and feel good about themselves. They live in a situation where there's 12 girls to an apartment with a young family, with a young couple with their own children, so that they have someone to role model. Uh, this is a, apparently this school is seen as one of the best in the world for um, helping this particular demographic. And uh, the staff there, it's not just a job for them. You could see they're all in and um, just so devoted and have really, you don't have 100% success ever, but they really, the whole town, it's in the town called um, Dolev, and Dolev, everyone in the town is involved with the school. They have the girls over for meals. They take care of them. It's um, it's really something so special to see. That's in Western Benjamin, and the girls are from all over the country. So it's just, it's so frustrating as somebody who lives in Judea um, that there's this, you know, this like we're second class citizens in the sense of because we live in an area that Israeli governments have not annexed or applied Israeli law on. And there are people on the left a lot fewer than there were before October 7th who still somehow feel that we're the reason that the Arabs hate us. If we weren't here, then there would be peace. There would be a Palestinian state, which would just be on par with Switzerland and Luxembourg and everything would be fine. Now, tragically, a lot of Israelis have woken up to the fact that they hate all of us and not because we where we live, but because we're Jews. And, um, and you know, that they are also could that people in Western Negev on October 7th were also considered settlers. So there's no place for Jews in the Middle East, according to the jihadi ideology <laughs> of which <coughs> Hamas, which is not just a few people, but probably the majority believe. And, um, so, uh, you know, and here we are, I think it's now 40% of the soldiers that have been killed in Gaza. I'm not even talking about the ones who've been terribly wounded, uh, come from Judea and Samaria during that week. Maoz Morel from Talmon, which is right near Dolev, uh, he was killed. His father's a tour guide, so I know who he is. Um, and so maybe, maybe those ridiculous thoughts will change. In the meantime, what I needed to do as a woman who lives in Judea and Samaria who knows a lot of women who live in Judea and Samaria, the ones I mentioned are just a few, and who is uh, connected with women in America, needed to bring the two together to strengthen each other, to understand each other. There's a special language that many of us have as women, as mothers, as wives, 
um, that we were able to share. And I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a week that anybody on either side is uh, going to ever forget. Friday, um, we had a speaker from Rigavim, Nomi Linder Khan. I've had her on this show, and she was telling us about the close to 100,000 illegal buildings that the Arabs in Judea and Samaria have put up with the help of the European Union um, in, an, in a what's looking like successful effort to undermine the Jewish communities here and what they're doing and the maps. And they are specifically building uh, along the so-called green line, meaning along the ceasefire line with little Israel. And you look at the map and you realize that in their minds, October 7th was just the first of many and not just a one-off. We have to make sure that obviously that doesn't happen, but it's going to take a lot more effort and a lot more support from people in the world who might be falling into what I just can't believe so many people are falling into some kind of sympathy with barbarians and evil. And I know that there's elections and I know that there's realpolitik, but come on people like, whoa, what kind of person are you? And again, not speaking to you, my listeners, although I never know who's listening. Once this goes out, I am sure that there are people listening who don't necessarily have the same ideas that I do. Uh, Shabbat, we did a walking tour of the old city. I was so excited to finally do it. I learned a couple years ago a tour um, from phenomenal tour guide and teacher, Tamara Yardani, who just specialized in Jerusalem. And it was women in the old city from Eudokia, the Byzantine queen, through Melisin, the crusader queen, to um, and all the stories about her sister and the convent and how she she reorganizes the cardo, like, you know, people have gone into the city so many times and never really noticed. You're walking through Roman area, you're walking through Crusader area, you're walking through modern. Um, what's going on? Anyhow, so it's like a tour from a totally different perspective. And then, of course, the women, the Jewish women who got involved and helped lower the mortality rate in the in the 19th century, like 25% of the women died in childbirth. So much disease, and it's it was so difficult. And some women who got that, you know, together and helped and and did what they could to other women who used their stores as uh, a place for the Haganah for the for the Jewish force that was fighting to get the British out of here, which they finally do in 1948. Um, and using their stores as meeting places, as places for messages to be carried on, even some places storage for weapons, which earned you a death penalty from the British. And just really like, and uh, you know, just awesome Esther Callengold from England who came in the forties to teach English. She ends up being killed in the old city during the battle for the old city in 1948. And nobody really knew her story until 1991 when her brother is going through the parents' house, the parents have passed away and he finds about a hundred letters from her in the attic um, where she, you know, so it's like this human glimpse, always so important because History doesn't really give us the human glimpse, doesn't usually give us the female voice, which is another another story. But it's more of like this, the facts, this happened and this happened and it doesn't tell us why um, or gives a guess as to why. That's always my thing is why, 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 why this happened and not something else. Um, usually framed around the wars and uh, very often not the, the, the voice behind who lived through it and what did they eat and where did they go and what did they see. And so that gave us a glimpse, a very special glimpse into what was happening in Jerusalem in uh, 1948. And that book was published. And then on Sunday, 
we went down to the Western Negev. Uh, first, we went to Steyrot. Um, to The police station isn't there anymore, but we heard what happened there and this beautiful mural, a couple of murals actually that had been painted there. And we drove around to a city that's starting to come back out of the 36,000 people. I had met with the mayor of Steyrot the week before on another trip that I took there with the camera organization. Uh, so I, I, you know, we didn't have to bother him and I was able to fill in a lot of the details for them. And then from Steyrot, we went to the parking lot where like a thousand cars from that day, um, are stored, were cleaned out for human remains. Um, and now just the cars are left. So they're not going to bury the cars because the people have been taken out, but you just walk through there, you see the bullet holes, you see the burning, you hear the stories. We were taken around by one of the um, army reservists who's been there pretty consistently since October 7th and told us some of the work that they've done there. We also saw the motorcycles and the uh, pickup trucks of the terrorists that are also there. <laughs> and from there, we went to Al-Fakim. <sighs> And we met with um, this woman who became famous in Israel, at least, named Rachel of Ofakim, because she and her husband were taken hostage in their house, and she managed for 20 hours to keep the terrorists from killing them. She fed them. She spoke to them. She knows, knows Arabic. So um, she was able to just, she said, I treated them like company and therefore, and, and not like intruders. Uh, so she and her husband stayed alive. We had a very special tour of the house where it happened by her son, um, who himself is trained for these kinds of situations, but they, of course, because he's emotionally involved, wouldn't let him be on the team that eventually rescued his parents. But he took us around over an hour and told us what happened that day. Extraordinary human being. Um, and then uh, finally, the terrorists were able to come in, rescue the parents, uh, the, excuse me, the special forces and police were able to come in, uh, kill the terrorists and rescue his parents. We have a clip of when his mother comes out and she thinks everybody else has been killed. She thinks her children have been killed and he's there and he's there to tell her, you know, we're all alive and Abba's alive. Uh, and then we went to meet her in her home. Uh, so gracious, so lovely except that her husband is no longer alive. We met her on Sunday, and they told us how sick he was. Um, wasn't in the greatest physical shape to begin with. He was only 68 years old, but the, the whole trauma of the event just completely collapsed him. And so we met them on Sunday and then uh, got the news on Monday, today's Tuesday, that he died. That actually died. So we had, uh, I can't even wrap my mind around it, um, we were able to see her and take pictures with her and give her gifts and her son as well on Sunday in their home. So special. And uh, later this week, I'll, I'll pay a condolence call to them. But once you know somebody, it, may, it hurts. You know, otherwise, I would have heard it on the news and I would have been upset. But once you know them, it's on a whole different level. And that's what's happening here in Israel. I don't know everybody. Nobody here knows everybody. But we're one or two degrees separated from anything that's happening here. So we don't know them, but we do. 
And from there, I made a half-hearted and ultimately unsuccessful attempt to get into Kvaraza, which I think was just as well. I'd been there too many times. And then we went to the Nova Festival, to where it happened in the forest, and walked there. And I, I get off the bus when I go there. I've been there a few times, and I still hear them screaming. And the day that I get off the bus and I don't hear them screaming is the last time that I'll go. Because yes, it's really hard to go, but it needs to be hard. It needs to stay hard. It needs to stay insanely painful. Um, I've been asked so many by a lot of people to take them down, and I won't go. I won't go unless I know with whom I'm going and where their heads and their hearts are. It's not. I've talked about this before. That's why I took the tour guides there, so they should understand. It's not a place to guide people. It's to know this. It's to know what happened, so we can tell that to people. And if you are going to bring people down there, the deep respect that has to be shown in all these places, and um, which are also really starting to close down to anybody coming in because they want to rebuild and they want their privacy as they should. Uh, and then from there, we ended the day on a totally high note. We got had gotten permission uh, to get into one of the bases and treat the Tatsvitaniot, the spotters there, to a barbecue. Um, these are the girls who are, are always on the cameras uh, to see what is happening in Gaza. They're still doing that, and they're helping the forces. They work with intelligence, with all the army. They're amazing young women, 18 and 19 years old. One of my daughters, that was her job in the army 10 years ago. And not at the base that we went into, but at another base. Um, they, that The base was infiltrated. Um, some of the girls were taken hostage. Some were killed in the most painful and vile manner that you can imagine. Um, and some were gassed to death. The room that they were in, poison gas was injected into it. So some of the girls on the base we were on had originally been on that base. They weren't there on that black Shabbat, but some of their friends were, and they still haven't grieved. They haven't had time. They're processing that, but we gave, we barbecued for them. We made salad for them. We brought gifts for them. I think I hugged every single one. Um, I'm serious. Somebody has to do a study on mascara in Israel now because if mascara can hold up, it's what's happening here. It's the best waterproof mascara ever. I seriously can't believe that nobody's thought of that yet. Anyway, so that was the last evening of the trip, um, and we really ended it on that note, and it was... Uh, it was really something else to see, like I said, the strength and the weakness in the women. And when I say weakness, I don't mean in the traditional sense of not being strong. It's being vulnerable. It's being able to still be in touch with their emotions and not have to pretend. I think that's to some degree an advantage that women have. Like if we cry, nobody's going to look askance at us. Um, although I have to say, that we saw plenty of tears on the men this week as well, that that we didn't meet that many, but um, they're also, it's too much. It's just Rachel Edry from Alpha came, her son said to us, you know, it's almost five months later and it's still surreal to him that the whole thing happened. It's like he watched a movie. Uh, that's how a lot of us feel and they were really like in the thick of it. So um, with that, I'm going to end. I have things I have to catch up on today. I'm going to Miami next week. I'm going to be speaking there. If anybody of you are in that area and want to find out where and when, to so drop me a line, please. Um, and uh, that should be interested. Not quite ready to leave, but I know that that's also important. Not everybody's coming here. Almost nobody's coming here. 
So I have to take the message out and I will do the best that I can with the strength and the vulnerabilities that our creator has bestowed me with. With thanks to Ben and to Tabitha and to all of you, wherever you are, I hope you are well. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation, the Land of Israel Network. Take care, everybody, and goodbye for now.